My name is Randy Kim. I'm a queer Vietnamese Khmer American based in the Chicagoland area. I am the host and creator of the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. I am also working on my master's in nonprofit management at DePaul University. I am also the board member of the National Cambodian Heritage Museum up in Chicago. And I've been a storyteller and I work in the nonprofit sector. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thanks for coming on the show. Because I think that if we were able to embrace more of these different and extreme parts of ourselves, we can make sense of things better instead of just making it so polarized, right? Because if you think about it, there's wonderful things about being straight and there's wonderful things about being queer and gay and lesbian. There's you and all the things that are in between it, you know, between being Cambodian and Vietnamese, there's overlap and there's these nuances of gray. But I, and I, and I bring this up all the time in, in our in our society today, I think the polarization of politics of money and all of these things that are dividing us um if we can all say what you just said about i'm 100 vietnamese and i'm 100 Vietnam, uh, american i'm 100 cambodian that makes so much sense so much sense but that's not something that um we in society i think even on a deeper matrix level the, the computer algorithms are accepting uh, for us to do, you know, and that's that's scary. Yeah, one thing I would also add is that no one says that I'm, aside from being 20, like, let's say you're 20% Cambodian, people will say that based on the genetics, mm. but no one's going to say, I feel like I'm 20% Cambodian. I feel 10% American. And I think that's something that we need to kind of uh, call in and, and, and to really examine that. Yeah. Because because um, all of these experiences do matter, even if we can't uh, fulfill uh, the basics or what is seen as the basics, whether it's language, whether it's being able to cook um, your family's traditions or being able to understand uh, the other traditions that your family holds and or ancestors uh, for that matter. So uh, I think we are truly valid. Uh, in these experiences, regardless of what our community thinks of of who gets to be valid and who doesn't. Many times we have to draw these lines because uh, it's us and the others. And this happens in Vietnam as well. It happens, I'm sure, in Cambodia. happens everywhere in the U.S. Uh, for obvious reasons. But um, I was digging into uh, the ethnologic ethnology side of our languages, Vietnamese, Khmer, and, um, you know, the Vietnamese and the Cambodian languages are, are very similar. Uh, it, they share a lot. There's there's a lot that, that is shared. And I didn't know this before, you know, the last week of, of reading about uh, the ethnology, because, you know, I don't know much about the word Khmer. So uh, can you explain to me um Khmer, Cambodia, Kampuchea. Uh, there's so many different terms for this part of the world. Um and how it overlaps with uh Vietnamese. 
I think it's it's a great question, and this is a question that I don't have the full knowledge of, and I uh, will apologize if I'm not able to go further on it. But um, I do notice that a lot of uh, fellow people in, in the Kamai community prefer uh, the term Kamai because it it is a more authentic. It goes back into the history, uh, dating back to uh, to the Angkawat area, uh, to the Angkawat era, and uh, the Cambodian, the term Cambodian and Cambodge, you, you think of it as closely uh, connected to the French, to the colonization. And there's something that's quite, um, it's colonial. It's, a, it's colonial. It's also uh, imperialistic. And, and that era was not one of altruism. This is a very, uh, a particularly violent era. Uh, if we need to call it, if we need to name it um, that way. And and I think that there are many folks that feel very uncomfortable with being called Cambodian, even though it's very universal on an international level. Most people will say Cambodian and more people um, who understand that Cambodia is actually a country will know that it's um, almost derogatory. That, yeah, so it's it's. Um, it's universally accepted, but there are many folks in the community that want to claim uh, Khmer. So I try to use both um, Khmer and Cambodian. I don't think anyone uses Cambodge. I don't think I've known anyone that uses it, but uh, we use Cambodian only because it's it is more universally recognized. But we also know that there's a responsibility to lift uh, the Khmer name up uh, more, and uh, so I'll, I tend to use both of them just for uh, one to acknowledge. Uh, where the community is on this. And I don't speak for the whole community on that either. So I want to acknowledge that, um, but also Cambodian because it is a universally uh, recognized uh, term that most people recognize. Now, when you um, started out your podcast, you uh, created the, the name Bunmi Chronicles. And yes. you, know, I, you can read it a lot everywhere uh, online. You've been at this for years now. Can you explain that to me? Um, and I want to get into a little, uh, you know, question and answer uh, about the uh, the title and, and what it meant to you. Yeah, I think uh, when I first started the uh, the Bummy Chronicles podcast back in fall 2019, actually three years before that, I was at a uh, at a bummy shop in Chicago called Newlon. It's one of my favorite places and actually one of my mom's favorite places to go to. So we went together and I was having lunch and I was thinking to myself, you know, it would be so great uh, to name my next book or uh, my next uh, writing collection uh, name as the Bunmi Chronicles because Chronicles is like a collection. And I thought deeply it was why that name actually resonates with me. So the Bunmi sandwiches were my first favorite Vietnamese food. I was not a fan of eating pho growing up, um, which is sacrilegious, but I loved the Bunmi sandwiches and it felt more accessible as a kid growing up in a fairly predominantly white school. And, and oftentimes I was very scared of what my mom was going to make for me uh, for lunch because uh, Vietnamese food is very foreign at that time. And the idea of bringing in Asian food into a lunchroom is terrifying. Quite terrifying. Yeah, terrifying. Absolutely. And the bunny sandwiches to me were a compromise because it looked westernized. Uh, 
and it is because the French bread obviously came from France. And uh, I think of the bami as a as a metaphor of of assimilation in a sense, um, because that's how I grew up, um, being born in America. But my family roots are in the Vietnamese and uh, Cambodian homeland. And I wanted to do something that actually speaks to that uh, existence. And the Bami was a great metaphor for that. And that's how I uh, started. And uh, the Bami Chronicles was also another way of calling it breaking bread or breaking bun me. I love the idea of having conversations with folks. I love being able to uh, to hear stories of my friends and community members and strangers who share a lot of the uh, familiar parallels that, uh, that I live through, whether it's on queer identity, whether it's on, on Southeast Asian identity and, and, uh, and, and, and more. You, you know, as we spoke before uh, a few times, um, sitting down with you as a podcaster, this is sort of like looking in the mirror for me. This is the first time that I think this is the first time that I've spoken to a Vietnamese podcaster here in the US. And I think there's only there's really just a handful of us. But as I dug more and more and more, there's actually more than a handful that started out. You know, there's yes. so many people that start out doing this. And um, you and Tracy from Vietnamese Book People are uh, the two that have uh, been at this for many years. And I, um, as I got into the work, I began to understand how difficult it is to sustain mm. for a long time. So I, I want to invite you uh, to ask any questions from this point on, you know, as we're talking because you're another podcaster. So I want you to feel comfortable in that space to, to ask me anything um, from here on out. And I think we yeah. mentioned that before. Um, how do you continue to sustain day in and day out with this work? It's not, you know, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. I listen to your podcast and, you know, uh, the, the sound and the editing, it's a lot more intricate than, than mine. Mine's just a straightforward interview. Really? Um, yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, I, I listen to yours and I'm like, you know, there's, there's much more going on. I feel like, you know, and, <laughs> and it's, a, it's just a lot of work, right? I mean, years it of is. it. It's a lot of work. How do you, what it keeps is. you going? Wow. Um, it's a good question. Also, I want to acknowledge, uh, like, I love listening to your podcast, by the way. And I also want to acknowledge that uh, my mom is also, uh, has listened. I've let her listen to uh, a few episodes, like, in the car together, which is very rare. I don't do that very often. And uh, and that, to me, is like, wow, that this is a podcaster that I could really respect. And I love the, the love of of conversations you have with your guests. So it's kind of surprising to me because I feel like your show is more intricate and I feel like you're not giving yourself enough credit oh, because, you. because yeah, there's so much that you've dived in with people like Ocean Vuong or Viet Thanh Nguyen or uh, Tao Ha and uh, several others. And, and the way you do it is so uh, remarkable to me. And that's the kind of thing that inspires me as a podcaster because um, for me, I'm, I'm not going in it to compete and to look at metrics, it's it defeats the purpose of my own mission. And what sustains it for me, um, I think a couple. I think maybe there's a couple of factors too. Uh, I've had always struggled with starting 
a project and seeing it to completion. I've mm. always felt like there's this excitement and then you realize you're getting in. It's like, gosh, this does not feel like the kind of work that I want to do. And it feels very defeating because I feel like I have just failed. I've, and it only exploits my imposter syndrome to another level. But there was something that kind of pushed me with this one. Um, and I think it really started when I go back to my journalism days as a student, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and when I was going into journalism, I was in a predominantly very white led mm. field and I never felt um, included. I don't think anyone understood the cultural uh, assets that I brought in to this work. And I did not have the mentor that I needed, especially someone who would have been uh, who ideally would be Asian American. I did not have that. And so it was very hard. And anytime I look back on that period, I just felt a, a lot of the what ifs, what would have happened had I successfully assimilated? What would have happened had I got this um, six figure job working as a news anchor or um, working as a reporter and and obviously the economic downturn of 2008 really challenged it uh, challenged the whole sector so when i look back in that period i wanted to do a podcast that is also kind of a way to heal from those early wounds uh, but i also felt that i deserved better from that experience and that it kind of motivated me to think of not only myself as a young person back then, what I wasn't getting, and but also what we weren't getting taught in uh, K through 12 or even college for that matter. Like, like we were only taught about Asian American history in tragic terms, whether it's the Vietnam War and or um, World War II with the Japanese Americans, and and we were seen as the villains, and it's uh a problem because that's where a lot of the anti-Asian racism stem from is in the classroom and in the hallways, especially when you learn history about the Vietnam War, how America didn't succeed in, in its uh, colonizing endeavors um, or what happened with the Japanese Americans during the uh, concentration camps and, and how we are often associated with uh, another uh, Asian country that, or Asian community that we had nothing to, that we had nothing to do with, but yet, you know, we are associated with it regardless. So um, I wanted to do uh, a show that reflected on, on telling our history in our own way. And that motivates me every day. I feel like every time I put out an episode, I have conversations with people who, discovered it and and seeing that they can actually feel the history happening being written for the first time and I never knew who uh, Grace Lee Boggs was or what happened to Vincent Chin until I was almost 30 years old and that is like nearly a decade ago and there's no reason why I should not have to wait this long to know the people who have contributed to our society um the the unpleasant parts of our history that uh, was uh, was um, 
afflicted by white supremacy. There's so much that we were not told about us. And I feel that there's a responsibility on my end and, um, and many content creators who are trying to uncover the history and see what we want to do with that history. How do we want it to affect our future? and how we teach that to younger generations and to our current selves that deserve to hear this all along. I mean, there's power to knowing that history. So that keeps me up and that keeps me uh, motivated to do it. And even when I get as exhausted as I've gotten and I have where I took a hiatus, I think being able to um, step back and being able to reflect more about um, the last few episodes or the last few seasons for that matter and being able to have co- more time for conversations about the uh, about the work uh, has given me more fuel to do the seventh season and I would not have been able to do it without uh, my supporters, my good friends and people who really feel invested in this work. Yeah, the work you do is important. You know, it's... Uh... It's things that uh, we, 10 years from now, will feel the impact. You know, these small micro conversations, you know, if the black, Ameri- the black, the African-American community in the U.S. didn't have the conversations 50 years ago, they, we as Asian-Americans wouldn't be enjoying this. And we're just scratching the right. surface as a community, understanding how much the African-American community has, you know, chipped in or chipped away at the at the work that that now we're sort of like now we're recognizing like there's a lot of work to be done. Oh yes, oh yes, and I mean that's also another reason why I wanted to also do this because Grace Lee Boggs and her husband James Boggs, who's all, who's black and worked uh, very closely with Malcolm uh, Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party. Yuri Kochiyama struck up a huge friendship with Malcolm X. Um, Helen Zia after the time of Vincent Chin's murder, uh, worked with the Rainbow Coalition, which was headed by Jesse Jackson, uh, Martin Luther King, and Thich Nhat Hanh. So when we talk about um, the, the struggles of Black and Asian solidarity, and while that is very true, and while that is incredibly um, heartbreaking, and also a result of the minority myth that has uh, done a lot to damage these relations. There's also many moments in our history where solidarity has happened and it's also happening now too. And um, people aren't paying attention to it because mainstream media is not gonna be invested in um, bringing communities together because it threatens uh, the status quo, it threatens uh, white supremacy. Yeah, I mean, even if you take it down to the the street level with our friends and family. There, There's a lot of people in our community, friends of mine that I've grown up with that are doing very well. You know, they're doing very well and they don't want to have to reach down and help or discuss people that they think in their mind's eye is just lazy, uh, dumb, mm-hmm. uh, not working, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, this is a reality in, in the Vietnamese community. Um, and, you know, this, <sighs> is, yes. this is a part of being human. And I think the nuances of like those conversations are, you know, they're buried away because it doesn't affect them. It doesn't, uh, they don't need to talk to it. But I think what happens is when we go, um, this younger class of, 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 of students of Vietnamese descent or Cambodian descent goes into the classroom, 
and begin to learn about you know these brutal tactics of the United States government, there's this sort of like awakening that we have, right? And yeah. if you go on and on and on and you go down the rabbit hole and you start to discover more about it, you're like, wait a minute, I have a choice. I can go on and make the money or I can let this, you know, sort of simmer inside me and do something about it eventually. And I think, yeah. you know, we, we have to we have to acknowledge that there are these very two clear polar opposites of each other but there's got to be in my heart as a as a pacifist you know sometimes when i think about this sort of angle mm. in our community there's got to be a way where we can just kind of like go look we understand that that exists and this exists there's very polar opposite things mm. that exist you know like I, I sit dinners with my uncles and some of them are, are amazing businessmen and you know they just won't give it a shot but we have to right we have to like somehow persuade them through our example, through our work, that um, it matters to pull up the poor. It matters to pull, pull up the, the underprivileged in our community and outside of our community. It's very important to understand why uh, there's good things about the Black Lives Matter movement and there's really bad things about it, but we need to talk about it and not in polarities. We need to talk about the details, the nuances, all of it. We should constantly seek to explain and talk and talk. And we should keep talking until we're like blue in the face and then talk about it some more after we're blue. Yeah, no, I, I agree because, I mean, movements have its own toxicity. And, and yeah. then we also have to pull the roots and really examine where the problems are lying and where the trauma is happening in these roots because it's clearly planted there for a reason. And, um, and it's how we respond to it. Now, I think uh, when I think of what's, what has happened in our own community, yeah, it is incredibly frustrating when you are trying to engage with um, members of your community that aren't seeing what you're seeing. But I also want to say that there's a reason why teaching that history is very important because growing up, I wanted to be very white adjacent. There's no question about it. Like sure. when I couldn't, when I couldn't speak the languages of my parents and I became very distant, I felt like the next best thing for me to do is to double up on my Americanism. Uh, I became, I went into journalism uh, as part of that. I went and became an English major. I taught English in South Korea. So clearly there was a lot of this Americanism that I was um, pushing out, but also realizing that what I was getting back was hardly uh, a raindrop uh, when I was giving an ocean. So I thought about, about if we were taught our history, if we were taught the amazing leaders of our communities i think that we would be so much in love with ourselves in, the, in a sense we would be so proud and i knowing the history that i know now for the past decade i'm proud as fuck about my identities i'm proud of my roots and for a long time when we were taught the tragedies it creates that shame that we shame. don't want to be associated with it and I, and that's what it leads to if we don't tell our history in a way that actually brings the fullness, but also brings the kind of love and compassion that actually has existed. And that's why we're doing it now, because we can affect that change very quickly. And we don't have to try to 
fit into the size of a uh, the shoes of a white person when we never uh, were fitted in for them. You spent how long in Korea? Uh, three years. So you must have got to observe a lot. And I, I want to bring this up yes. because, <laughs> you know, recently, I'm not going to name names, but I was in a heated, uh, you know, at a, at a lunch and I was, it was a Korean friend of mine at the time. And, and yeah. she brought the, the term jungle Asians, right? Mm. Or, you know, and, and, mm. it, and it hurt. It, it hurt because it was a very heated mm. discussion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we got into that, uh, we got into that space where she felt that, you know, it was okay to say that right call me that or call my group of friends that it was it was a brutal uh awakening now we can see it from you know the meaning from wherever that came from but spending three years in korea um now is there some imaginary line of demarcation that uh that we can suppose that you know this group can call that group that derogatory name i mean of course nobody should be calling anybody but being in korea what is it about the culture that you think that a woman like that would say because i often know that you know that's something that's a sentiment that floats out there because i grew up with that i i grew up in koreatown here in la and that mm -hmm. was not the that was not the first time i ever experienced that you know but i mm -hmm. wonder like with somebody with with an American educated background like you going to Korea, you know, I mean, what are the differences in the culture? I just want to ask mm. you bluntly, you know, I'm asking from a very ignorant place. Uh, I went to Korea in 1994 for just a week. Mm. But you know, I was a young Marine at the time, I didn't know much. So uh, I didn't get to experience much didn't see much. But somebody whose eyes wide open, uh, and spent three years in Korea, Mm -hmm. uh what what are the things that that um that separates the the you know that culture from another culture are we all the same i think it's a really good question that you bring up and i'll try to see if i can navigate this one uh, i was from i was living in korea from 2009 to 2012 and i was there as an english teacher teaching at an all-boys middle school how i went through that i i have no idea i still can't figure that out because for the life of me i would never do it now but i had such a but i had a very positive experience for the most part with the locals with my students and with the teachers but there's also something that i did notice is that that because it's so homogenized mm. uh that what they see is the outside world is through media it's a lot of stereotypes a lot of western media that obviously perpetuates a lot of stereotypes of other asians or other or black communities or um i remembered going into uh going into a store with a friend of mine who is a black woman and i remembered the attention that she got in busan and you know some people wanted to touch her hair and i was yeah. very uncomfortable watching it's like why would like for myself, would I want anyone touching any part of my body? Absolutely not. Um, and I think that there was this curiosity. Uh, I remember when I first started, they knew that uh, they're very curious about uh, and like seeing an Asian person living in America. And there was this weird, this nuance that they're very curious about. And they would ask me all these questions about, did you like, 
you know, there, you must be very happy there. You must be very rich. Um, and there's this envy of being American. But I also noticed that at the same time, there was also Vietnamese migrant workers. I used to actually volunteer at an, orphan, an orphanage and at a, uh, at a women's shelter. And we also had Vietnamese women that were married off to Korean men and were in very abusive relationships. And uh, I would say that that they, like Vietnamese migrants, Southeast Asian migrants in particular, were treated very poorly from the things that I've heard. I haven't seen it. I haven't been a witness to it, but it also tells you that that there is such a cultural pride that's similar to America. There's this, um, and I'm going to be very careful not to like, you know, stereotype an entire uh, country of people, but I did notice that there was a lot of this America first mindset that I, that I would see, you know, from a lot of the conservatives. It's very similar to Korea in a way, but there's also curiosity about uh, other foreigners and people who come into the land. I think it might have changed, but this was about over a decade ago when, um, like, like if you're in Seoul, it's more of a utopia. There's more foreign mm. internationals that live there. Busan was the second largest city, but it felt like it was still kind of stuck in a more, uh, more developing country in a way in terms of of their of what they were educated on and how they dealt with uh foreign internationals and now that has changed um i haven't been back since so i hope to visit there you know just out of curiosity uh i still have my relations with a lot of my former students there but but yeah uh, i just remembered uh, i don't know if that answers your question but i, I just yeah, remembered I, that, yeah you know the homogeneity of you know, cultures is really it. You know, there's there's this sort of uh, lack of awareness when you're around everybody who looks the same, acts the same, speaks the same language, and you don't have to deal with outsiders or uh, things that are different. And I think that the power of, you know, strength in numbers, when you have somebody coming in from a different uh, place, whether you're Korean or white America, or even in Vietnam, you know, there's so much prejudice that exists in, in humanity. Um, and that's probably mechanisms of survival that we have vestiges from, you know, in the ancient, uh, you know, living out in places where you have to kind of defend yourself. Mm. Yeah. And also, um, not to change the subject, but getting back to the old subject of, you know, podcasting. First of all, how the heck do you do 150 plus episodes in like two years? I, I have not even gotten to 100 yet. And I was exhausted even getting that far. But how the heck do you do that and releasing it every couple of days? It seems like you literally are hosting a radio show, if anything. Yes, I thank you for the question. Um, I am addicted to this work and I've always been into this kind of stuff. I used to, you know, and I see it in my daughter. She's only, you know, she just turned five. But when she was like wow. three, she was saying her, hello to everybody on the airplane. She would go up to people at three. And now at five, she was just rolling like, you know, we we're at the park uh, three days ago. She just rose up to a, a, a group of ladies. There was like four uh, ladies and five of their daughters at the park. And she sat right in the middle of the ladies and she just struck up a conversation. And they were all white people. Wow. She just sat right in the middle of them and just started hanging out and talking. And I let that go on. I just let it. I was like, oh, my God, this is that was me when I was five. And um, so being around people and um 
asking questions from people like you who have uh, had a lot of life experiences, it energizes me. So if I don't do this, I lose energy. Um, so that's that's probably my first first answer. Um, so uh, this gives me energy, um, and I think I can do this for a long time because it's a source of energy for me. It's uh, I do it. Uh, it's on a very selfish level, and I, I admit that freely all the time. This is very selfish for me. I get so much inspiration, so much knowledge, and I can't believe somebody like you would sit and talk to me. You know, that's the way I look at it. I'm like, I feel so much gratitude for having somebody like you who've done so much work uh, and, and, and grind and, and, and put so much effort into your life story. And you're sitting here and you're willing to answer the questions that I have. That is a privilege that I will never, I will never stop um, tapping into because it's, it's a privilege that, um, that I, 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 I feel so blessed. Uh, the second thing is, um, you know, when it comes to numbers and when it comes to, you know, where we're going to be with all this, I, I have a weird personality where I, I'm addicted to the numbers and I, I want to see numbers grow and I want to see listenership. So I am plagued with that sort of um, that. I, that's a problem to have, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, I understand you know, that. I, I know a lot of people who are like they, they'll get killed because they, they are so focused on that. And I am, too. So mm. that. But because I am, I have that part of my um, personality. Um, I can look back on. Uh, I've talked. I briefly talked about this many years ago. But um, I started out as a singer um, right after 9/11. Uh, I'd been singing for years before that. But formally, I went back to school for singing and voice and you know, sound production, all this music stuff. And I stuck with that really uh, hardcore for five years. And um, when I look back, I'm like. Had I went for 10 years, I would have broken into Paris by night like because that was the goal at the time. But I didn't speak mm -hmm. Vietnamese well. So um, oh, I, I never looked at it as a waste of time because that's the one thing in my life I felt like I did it and I went all out. I went all out with the lessons. I went all out with yeah. like training. And you get to the point where you're completely satisfied that you went all out and you knew that you couldn't put an extra inch into this journey and make it, you know, quote unquote, make it. So uh, that was five years. And I thought that um, that I didn't I never felt like I wasted time like other endeavors in my life. Right. Wow. And and so I look back and I'm like, oh, if I can do this podcasting for 10 years and, you know, I, and what kind of numbers are we thinking? What kind of what are we looking at? I don't care, because at the end of the day, there's only a handful. You, me, Tracy um, here in the US. What does it matter? You know, I'm learning a lot. Uh, I feel like there's people in the community that that listen and learn about um, people that I bring on. So why not do it for 10, 20 years? It's it's so fun. I get a lot of energy from it. So that's sort of what it's. So I'm in a weird way wired experience wise. My experience has wired me uh, for this endeavor. It, it specifically built me up for this. And then the third thing, obviously, um, is, you know, work working in trying to be a singer, uh, having that experience, and then at the same time uh, coming out of college and working in the Vietnamese film industry. My brother's in it. Uh, I was in it for 20-something years. I'm still in it. Uh, I'm very close uh, in proximity to all the directors uh, in the U.S. Uh, yeah. Came up with the the Bui brothers and, you know, continue to, to, to really be as, as active as I possibly can. And I get a lot of support because, you know, I'm there 
sort of like they're, you know, my, my partners and, and I, we, there's a very collaborative sense uh, with all the hats that we wear in our, in our crew. So those three things um, allow me to sort of like have that in, that it seems like endurance, a special type of endurance, but it's not, it's, it's, it's caked into my everyday sort of existence. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I think yeah. it's, it's really, uh, I love hearing these stories too. And uh, I know I've already shared like what keeps me going. Um, I think the metrics can be nice to kind of figure out like who's actually listening. I, I don't want to dismiss it. I, I do pay attention. Uh, I don't like to end up getting to into the compare and despair because you have to remember uh, for the audience, like especially for any new podcasters, I'm going to be very blunt uh, for any new podcasters that are starting out into this work. You can't just go in thinking that this is a hobby um, because your the audience who listens to podcasts or doesn't usually i would say i don't know if i have the average but you're talking about like maybe a couple of podcasts that they'll listen to and if they need to add in a sixth podcast or their seventh podcast you really gotta be serious about the investment in their time and um and you yourself have to take it seriously uh and and it's not it's it doesn't have the low financial, it doesn't have the high financial rewards that everyone's looking at. We're all not going to get Joe Rogan money, throw that out there. Uh, but for me, the reward is being connected with community members. I've gained so many amazing yeah. friendships. I've gained the wealth of knowledge. And I come out of these interviews just being full of gratitude, as you said, because it's like, I cannot believe I had just interviewed um this author who i absolutely admired yeah. to a community member who i've known the last couple of years i'm proud that that person is now finally getting a platform to speak yeah. on and if i can and, the, and if i was and that I was a part of you know giving that platform to that person so i get that excitement all the time and um so i'm blessed to be in community and it only deepens my relationships with yeah. people so um that's what keeps me going well i do it for 10 20 years I'm a yes or no on this uh, question because I also do want to write. Um, and, but I do love interviewing though. Yeah. I, it's hard for it me. Yeah, it's it hard for me to give that up too, because that, because that activates my curiosity about the world. And it also, given how difficult the world is, I want to be able to find some kind of way to contribute to this. And I found opening dialogues and opening up space and lifting people who are doing the work is more important um, and the best contribution I can make at this time. So, you know, it's, yeah. I, I say I wanted to do it for three to five years and I'm now heading into three years and I'm like, but you know what? I If I need to take a pause, then I need to take a pause and I yeah. need to be transparent about it. Totally. And I think that's it's, it's fine. You know, um, here's the here's the real big problem. There's only three of us, really, because uh, there's probably another dozen or there's so. There's probably a few more, yeah, that we don't yeah. know. Or they're they're not doing Vietnamese related work, but are Vietnamese? Yeah. I've seen that too. Yes, yeah. yes, they're not doing Vietnamese in, in the Vietnamese space. The the problem is this: um, there's <laughs> up and coming singers, for example, or up and coming artists, right? Where do they go? Where do they go to talk about what the, they just accomplished? They just put out an EP. Like Trace, for example. Uh, oh yeah, she's great. I love it. That new well, that new EP. I will pump that one up. I love that new EP. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get Trace on on the show soon. Uh, Yay! We've been in contact, and look, if there was 20 of us, Trace would go from show to show to show, 
And then we all have different, uh, very different um, demographics. And we share and we overlap. But if there was 20 of us in the Vietnamese space and adjacent to the Vietnamese space and, you know, overlaps and whatever, I could literally say, hey, Trace, I'm going to reach out to six people that are very close to me. I'm going to put you on Randy, put you on a Tracy. I'll put you out there and then go on those shows so we now know who Trace is, right? She's got badass music. She's amazing she music. And where is she going to get the, 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 the push from like mainstream, you know, and how many traces are there in the world? There's a lot. There's quite a few that we're not, um, you know, we don't have the, we don't have the ability to amplify because there's not enough of us. Now you think about Joe Rogan and you think about Lex Friedman and Jocko Willink and, um, all these impact theories and, you know, the Tim Ferriss, the list goes on when somebody like a Deepak Chopra puts out a book. He'll go on to Oprah, Joe Rogan. I mean, the list goes on. I, and I'm making right. these. I'm, uh, right. I'm making these things up. My point is, they go on a circuit that are people that are very similar to their vibe and their audience, and they're people that are like a little bit off. But they go on like 20, 30 shows to push their product. Well, why the hell are we not doing that? We have to start now. And I keep talking to. Uh, people that are, you know, um, that are, are personality types, that are host types, that are not in the podcast space. And I'm like, you should get into it. And um, even if it's once a week, once a month, mm -hmm. uh, having a show that has some sort of regularity uh, and consistency is so important for our amplification. Mm, I, I also want to say maybe maybe a very kind, gentle pushback on it is I actually am more optimistic. I do think that that is it is happening. I, I know in the Cambodian community, there are podcasters out there, like two American sisters being one of them. Uh, I'm I'm very happy to support anyone that really wants to uh, get into that work um, as long as they are serious about yeah. the commitment and that they understand their mission because for me the mission is like the bible of nonprofits. i come from a nonprofit mm. world and um and people need to know your why's in your work and this is something that my professor professor lisa deatland would say to us saying that <clears throat> your donors need to know the why they need to know your story of why you get get into this work you know they're not necessarily always donating because of the organization itself or the mission they want to know who you are they want to know that you're trusted they, they want to know that you know how to do this work and that you do care about it and that's for that's the same goes for listeners you, you know listeners need to know that they are spending a good hour uh listening to something that can really be worthwhile or at least get them to think about a topic or to have a conversation um when I can actually bring my mom to listen to your episode uh, with uh, Wen Gao Gi Zwin, uh, who is a Paris by Night MC who I you know grew up watching and hearing how um, cerebral she is, just incredible. And, and for my mom to tell stories about what she thought of her, because my mom really looked wow. up to her. And that that's a special moment uh when i can have that uh or the vietnamese boat people podcast when i can have her listen to uh, uh the interview with uh when Ban Kim mai and that uh those are those are the kind of moments that i have and when i listen to other podcasts i want to feel like i'm learning something i'm like most people think that we're always competitive there's competitors out there but like for me i want to go in knowing that there's people I can actually um, 
like bring some of my guests to go on to their shows. I want to be able to say, yeah, um, you should check out this guest who I had on about two months ago um, uh, and recommend them because I want to see their platform grow. I love the work that they're doing and it deserves that kind of love. And also, I don't want to be the only one doing this. Uh, that's, that's not the burden I want to take on. So, yeah. You know, uh, the word competition is, uh, for me, it's um, in this space, it's no different than singing to me. I see it as a singer. Like, you come with a certain uh, timber in your voice and your viewpoint. I come with a, a certain uh, expression. Um, mm -hmm. Like singers, right? Like, you know, I can enjoy Lady Gaga and Adele all at the same time on the same playlist, right? Same. And I, I view it, yeah, I view it the same is, uh, this is something that um, that's a collaborative uh, space. And when I mean collaborative, I really mean like reach out to me whenever uh, you need to, to get introduced to somebody or you need uh, any type of technical help or um, you're trying to like figure out like how to navigate something. And I would love to have that access with you and with Tracy and, and a community of, you know, right now there's that I only know of three in this sort of space that we have. But I'd like in the next five years to have 20, 20 strong podcasters that are out there and, and doing it. And it's not easy work, um, but it, singer songwriters are writing and they're singing at small bars for years and years and yeah. years. And they're working at they're working at their waitressing job or a cafe and they're doing that. And they're you know, and it takes a, and I feel harder like the with ones, the pandemic, too. And yeah. much harder with the pandemic where you really can't tour. And even if you do tour, it's very costly. Totally. But they're they're doing it, and the only way you get good is by doing it often. And the only way you quote unquote make it is you have to do it often enough to where you get your own voice down and your style down, and people understand like, oh, okay, this is what this is about. And it takes thousands of reps, thousands of hours to get to a point where we can do this uh, at a at a at an efficient um, clip. Yeah, let me ask you. So, after 150 plus episodes, do you, or do you feel comfortable with what you're doing, or or do you still feel very insecure, even I've, as a? I yeah. feel super insecure. I don't think that that's not even chipped away. I, even talking to you, I like, was nervous about it all morning. You know, I was thinking really? about it for two years. I was like, yes, it's natural. Uh, God, he's been at this for years. I know he's not judging me because you know you and I have had conversations. We we text back and forth. I know who you are on a sort of on a on an emotional level. But at the same time, my 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 intellect takes over and I'm like, you know, uh, I'm 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 I don't think that uh, having confidence is something that is a I, having for me, uh, confidence is not the name of the game for me. I like to go into things a little more raw insecure, uh, questioning who I am, questioning my identity, questioning everything when I go in with a, a guest, anybody. Because the minute I lose that, the minute I lose that humility, bordering self-esteem issue, right? Bordering, uh, you could call it a lack of confidence. The minute I lose that, I think I lose my, uh, it's really my, uh, my super, you know my my strength is the, the 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 lack of confidence the lack of um belief in in myself i mean that's i think what gives me this sort of like 
position to to ask questions because if I think that I know the answers, if I think I know Randy Kim, I'm gonna come in here with a weird attitude, and that's not that's not how I am. I think built, and so I think the longer and the 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 the, the longer I have it, and not let it corrode my sense of who I am, and you know, it's it's a balancing act, but I don't push it away. I allow it to 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 be here because it it offers a sense of hum humility, and it, that humility brings the humanity out in the conversation. That's how I feel. Yeah. I I could be wrong. Uh... No, I think that's, I, I love your reflection on this too. And, and I love your uh, ability to be humble, but also to exercise your own confidence, which is a very hard thing to do each time. I mean, I have times where I've screwed up on an episode personally, and I, I, I'm just like, I can't re-listen to this. I just can't, you know, I find myself listening um, to past episodes just so that I can see what I've done uh wrong or what i need to do better with and yeah i think that after about seven seasons now at this um i do feel more secure in myself i am secure in my work i do have my moments where i struggle uh with uh i, I tend to stutter sometimes i tend to use a lot of filler words and i still say ums a lot which i don't really care i, I feel like as long as the content is is good. I'm there. And I oftentimes meditate on before an interview, like, okay, I'm looking through the notes, the questions, but I'm thinking about the relationship I have with this person, what this means. And, and, and I know that at the end of the day, I want to, you know, want them to feel uh, coming away, not depleted, but re that, that there's something that's really powerful that they can walk away feeling really good about themselves. And that's always the goal. But in, in order for me to get to that point, I myself have to be in a good place. And there were times in my last season that I was struggling. Uh, I was going through a very, very difficult spring. I felt like things were just coming at me 100 miles an hour. And I think there was two interviews that I did. <clears throat> there was two interviews that I did that were very traumatic because they were so deep into the trauma. And I did that in one day. I, I don't know how I even got to Damn. that point. But then when I interviewed Eric Wynn the following day for his book, Things We Lost for a While, thankfully that was not um, a trauma-induced yeah. interview. It was about his book. But I was so tired walking into that interview. And, um, and I felt like this is the sign where I really need to pause because – yeah, because otherwise I'm not going to do my guest any good when they are opening themselves up to me. I need to be in a good place for that. I need to be able to hold space. And and for a person who does the editing, the narration, the hosting, the promotion, and all that fun jazz that comes around with this work, uh, I have to preserve myself because otherwise if I start to struggle in three or four things, it's going to affect the one thing that I'm really the most passionate about, which is the hosting, which is the interviewing part. And if I start to lose that, this podcast is not going to uh, continue. Yeah, it's it's, you know, that uh, self uh, care is, is very important. You know, going back to this uh, humility and confidence thing, um, I, here's a backstory that I have. Uh, Growing up, I was taller than most of the people that I was around in my Vietnamese community. I was taller. Um, my brother was as tall as I was. Everywhere we went, it was this sort of like thing. How tall are you? Uh, I'm six foot, six feet. 
I'm six foot two, and my brothers are actually taller than me. Damn! Well, we're <laughs> some pretty big Asian time. boys. Yeah. Yes, yes, we do. So that's tall. That's a big. That's that's huge. Uh, then I joined the Marine Corps, and then um, throughout the whole time, I was so oblivious to the way people really saw me. I didn't really think my mother loves me very much, as yeah. most Vietnamese uh, mothers love their children. My mother yeah. loves me so 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 much, and in that love, well, this is my reflection now. In that love, you sort of think that the whole world loves you that way. And and when you think that the whole world loves you that way, you respond to the world in a way that's kind of careless sometimes. You don't really mm. think about you don't really think about the others the way you should be thinking about. You know, your EQ is somehow affected when your mother loves you that much. And mm. so joining the Marine Corps and getting out of the Marine Corps, this level of faux confidence fake confidence was at an all-time high finishing the Marine Corps, getting into USC here in LA, uh, which is where Viet Thanh Nguyen taught and, you know, which is where I went to school. You know, we ran each other on the, my, his first year in, my last year out. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, the reasons, but a lot of the kids at the time hated me. And I was uh, four years older because I just did a stint Marine Corps. So the incoming freshman Vietnamese student association, I just felt like they never really connected with me, but they connected with my brother very well. Like my brother's a nice guy, went through the same experience and they loved him. And I began to kind of chip away at like, why, why am I getting these weird vibes? And you know, it wasn't for until many years later, I started to realize that there was this like kind of fake confidence and this lack of humility that started to show up over and over and over. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is now really fucking up my, the way I look at humanity. This is not the way I want to be perceived at all. So then it started to go the other way and I started to fight to get to a very different place. And that's, I think, is where I'm at right now. I don't allow mm. this, <laughs> I don't allow my mother's love uh, to seep in and to cloud what might be the reality of how people see me. Ooh, that's an interesting, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I never thought about that at all until you brought this up. And I think I'm a harder person to, I know this This will be like a psycho. this will be in the, me in the uh, psychology chair there, but I, I would just say that I think I'm a tough person to, like my mom loves me. There's no doubt about it. Um, I I feel it, even though there are times when I always sometimes question it. Um, growing up, uh, I will say that that I was always very distant about people wanting to love me or mm. being too close. I have a like I can be around a lot of people in a matter of an hour. Like if I have to do um, pre-pandemic, I did not have a problem being around crowds of people um and you know engaging in conversations because at least i don't need to reveal my vulnerable self i can kind of uh i have a level of control over what i say but then when it comes to like in my past relationships it was very hard um like i have my distance and also maybe it's because i grew up with par my parents fighting with each other and all i wanted was peace all i wanted was that love mm. but it was hard to be seeing myself being in a place where I could repeat that trauma. Mm. 
And so I tend to have my own uh, barrier and I'm still kind of working through that. But yeah, I think when I think about my mother's love, uh, sometimes I push that away um, unintentionally, but I find myself doing that. Maybe it's because I'm too afraid to be vulnerable. My, my mom is a, a stroke survivor for the past 10 years and nearly losing her it still gets me very emotional, but I would have a very hard time letting her see me get emotional, despite how naturally emotional I get. So there's a lot of walls I do put up with certain people in my life that are close to me. Um, But in general, it's easy for me to emote. Like if I were to emote on your show, I could do that. But within family, not so much. So hard. Do you tell your mother you love her? I do, but I don't do? do it enough. Oh, I don't that's do amazing. That's amazing. I don't, I don't say it very much, though. I'm going to be very honestly, and I say it very discreetly. I say it very quickly. And do you say she's you usually say, the first to say that to me first? And I usually do things um, out of niceness, you know, or I, I will, you know, do some very random moments, you know, things that she would not expect. That to me is like, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm an Asian parent uh, because I would do things so <laughs> randomly. Um, that's how I do things. You know, um, my mom was, uh, you know, there, there was a, a time when I was, I, she and I were working at a factory, uh, our factory together in uh, Chinatown and it was years ago. And uh, we were working every Saturday morning. And, you know, I, I've told this story before, but she uh, and I would go uh, into work at around seven o'clock we'd, in the morning. We'd work and then half an hour in, we'd you know, hand off the work to the, you know, our workers at the time. And we would go eat because we were right in the heart of Chinatown. We'd just hop in the car and go eat. And this happened for a year or two. Uh, one day, like I came in at seven, I started working, waiting for her and I was getting hungry. And I was like, I called her and I was like, mom, where are you? She's like, oh my God, I forgot to tell you. I'm taking grandma, her mother, I'm taking grandma to Orange County. And we're, we're here in Orange County, which is an hour away. And then she's like, well, we just got here. Do you want me to just turn around? And then I'll take grandma and, you know, we'll go eat together with you. And then we'll go back down OC. And I was like, my mom is going to drive another hour back to eat oh, wow. breakfast with me and then go. And that was like the magnitude. And I almost wanted to cry and drop my phone. Oh. And at that point, it you just realize like that's the kind of um, almost toxicity, which is beautiful for me. But you have to kind of recognize w- with every blessing there's a curse, right? So that mm-hmm. over that that dynamic plays into sort of like your uh, confidence level and the blind confidence of thinking that you're loved everywhere you go can carry on. And you have to put that shit in check. Otherwise, mm-hmm. um, you're 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 walking around with your chest puffed and your head high yeah. when you don't need to. When when you should not be doing that. You should just, yeah. you know. There's plenty of people that hate my guts, so <laughs> I don't think that's a problem. Too. I'm I'm a Gemini, so I know I'm bound to make some enemies regardless. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So what have you learned in this journey that you didn't know before you started? What are some of the big things that that you really learned? Well, I know when I mentioned earlier that I am 100% of my identities, I, I think what I've learned, this is a really, there's a lot that I would say to this, but I feel like I'm almost speechless. Um, I've learned to that my relationships with people 
are are everything to me. I believe that there's no limit to deepening your relationships with people. Um, I think that being in the storytelling space, uh, being in the podcasting space, being in the nonprofit or activism spaces in the past, I learned the power of community. I learned that the more I lean into it, the more compassionate I become, the more uh, forgiving I become of myself, the more I'm unlearning. Uh, There's more that I'm still unlearning in the journey. And that is the best way to, to, uh, to be a better person. Because when we were taught, whether it's assimilation, whether it's through K through 12, whether it's, um, things that have actually harmed us that we were practicing that when we unlearn, we actually start to heal. Uh, and we start to learn better practices that actually serve us. So yeah, there's so much that I've learned, but it's the, it's building compassion for myself and how that actually helps me in my relationships with people. So it's still, it's still always a work in progress, but it's, uh, it's something that I am happily willing to work on because at the end of the day, there's so much more that I become better with. Uh, when I look back 10 years ago to hopefully where I am 10 years now, that that the relationships I have with people are going to feel tremendous, even if they're not in a relationship with me still, like the impact that it has is something that I uh, want to uh, carry with me. This ongoing discussion of continuing your podcast and you know we talk about trauma we talk about these experiences and we also talk about the overuse of the traumatic storytelling as a as a, an outlet mm-hmm. at what point do you think enough is enough or is it never enough this idea of discussion about trauma great question that's a really great question um I think about how it impacts the person with that lived experience. I pay very close attention to that. I don't think that that it, it takes a lot of time. And I think part of it's because when I've been in storytelling spaces where I would talk about my relationship with my dad and not seeing him for a few years or, or you know, talking about uh, the levels of trauma in my life, it's very draining. Uh, on me personally there are times when I just don't want to do it and I've done it in white spaces which also did not make it any easier but uh, what I also think about in my show is I don't want my show to be defined by trauma porn and I don't want to make my guests have to uh, I mean I've, I've had them share uh, context or stories of their trauma I don't think that there's a problem in sharing it because it gives us the history but there comes a time where you don't want it to be the identity that the, the trauma that I, that that defines you, um, that you are more than just a trauma. That it's actually what has informed your work, your being. Um, that is an experience uh, versus the identity that we carry. Like I, every time I you know would tell a story. I also want to leave in the end that I'm not going to stay in that trauma, that I am evolving, that I'm going to a newer place and that my story will not end there from that point, that it's a continuation. So 
I think when my guests, I, I had this conversation, I have these conversations with them all the time during a pre-call or during an email or Facebook messenger chat. And like, I would talk about, it's like, I understand you've been through this. Where's your boundaries? Where's, what's your level of feelings about this? Um, because I want to make sure that they're okay. And that's the first priority for me. And then, and then I also want to bring up other things that are lifting them. Like, this is what you've been doing since then. You know, this is what, uh, I don't want to get into the inspirational point of it, but I also want to say that I want to have some balance and not to keep people into their trauma at the end of the show, because it is exhausting. And also because we have so much to offer uh, yeah. beyond, way beyond the trauma, that we have things that we can celebrate, that we can honor, that we can... Um, be inspired to do uh in spite of what we had dealt with earlier on that's a very uh, rich answer and i appreciate that we uh have spoken um to each other about the future of the work that we do which is in podcasting and i have spoken to tracy and I want to put it out there uh, that I'm going to do an, an episode with Tracy from the Vietnamese Boat People. And shortly after, I think we uh, will find time. The three of us will go on one episode and you know we can all share that uh, episode and that recording and put it out there uh, as the three of us get together. And I am calling for other people in the space that uh, can do this and join forces and we want to i would love to see uh, a bigger vision with uh, the podcasters of our uh, of our of our space um and even if it's vietnamese adjacent you know it's it'd be interesting and so uh, one day uh we will have a um uh a group podcast that we'll do uh mm -hmm you know, one, one episode. And then we'll, you know, Tracy and I talked about this and I think uh, hopefully you can uh, hop on board for a an AMA style uh, yeah. live session uh, on an Instagram uh, live or a, a YouTube live or Facebook yeah. live, some, some live or Zoom live um, event uh, a few hours. And I think that would be uh, a fun thing to, I look forward to those kinds of things because now there's sort of like this uh, industry Together we can um, conquer the, the the space and get bigger amplification. Conquer uh, the, yeah. the 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 space to get our um, our our people, our community, their stories out there. And conquer is a weird word, but I, ha I, yeah. I and I thought about that. And conquer, what I mean is, if there are other like what you said, there's only five uh, podcasts that somebody's listening to. Well, we got to knock off one of the mainstream ones so we can be part of that, mm. right? The fifth, the, you know, and it's really conquering the mainstream uh, to to be to be in that be more space. Equitable, to, oh yeah, to equitable, find yeah. more equity, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also, I'd be very honored to you know take part in something like this because um, there's I, I still get inquiries about people who want to go into podcasting or are very intimidated by that work or not even in podcasting but to storytell in yeah. a public space or do a TikTok. I mean. I mean, take space wherever you can find it because yeah. <laughs> it's there. And also it's how we tell our history because, because, you know, in the eras that we grew up with, we were, it was very, very, very limited. Uh, nowadays we have this wealth of access and resources that we can take advantage of. And, you know, let's do it now because, um, you know, when I had this conversation with Helen Zia a while back, she, 
was talk like she wrote about the Nanking massacre uh, back in the World War II era, where um, hundreds and thousands of Chinese uh, civilians were massacred and brutally tortured by the Imperial Japanese Army. And when she was doing the interview, she said something to me because I was asking her about um, about the survivors of the Vietnam War and the Khmer Rouge and you know Lao refugees. And she said that time is not on your side, Randy. You really need to make sure that we start. You start having these conversations with people in your community about their stories, and also knowing that you will be the stewards of their history, but you are the, the steward of your history. You need to also make it matter. Uh, and I think about that every day, uh, not just because that generation is uh, is just slowly disappearing, and it breaks my heart to even think about it, but we're also like well what do we do with our history now and how do we how do we uh, make this as part of our future making goals and how is this going to impact um our current generations and the ones that haven't been born yet yeah these are all great questions and um just don't stop at year five no, I, I won't. But if I ever, for some reason, do, I'm going to be doing something else yeah. in place of it. I mean, sure. who knows? I mean, who knows? But I'm, I've been enjoying the ride so far. I'm enjoying sure. doing season seven, without a doubt. Yeah. And then get some mental health space in between and, uh, you know, coast along and, you know, just uh, it's like a marathon, right? We got absolutely got another 20 years together, Randy. Oh, God, <laughs> that means I'll be almost. Yeah, I, I don't even think about how old I'll be by that point, but. Very cool. Well, the next time I'll see you is on a um, an episode with Tracy from Vietnamese Boat People podcast. And uh, that's great. Thank you so much for um, spending time with me today. It's an honor. Uh, it really is. Thank you so much. It's it's an honor being on your show, and you know I just love how your show really connects with all the generations, older, middle aged, young. I mean, you are covering a lot of good ground, and I don't want you to stop too. And I hope that you guys will give yourself some pause because those are some. Those are a lot of episodes you've collected, my friend, and I hope that you give yourself a little bit of grace and that you continue on because it's excellent work. And I'm very honored to be in company with another uh, amazing podcaster. Thanks again, Randy. All right. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.